Hello and welcome to AI Studios. I'm Natalia Verina, and this is a show where we learn about the latest advancements in how we build, use, and interact with AI. Our guest today is Balwal Sadhu, dubbed by information as the creator who quit Google to experiment with AI. Love it. Bil Thanks for Bilwa having me. Yeah, welcome to AI Studios. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Thanks for coming on. Um, so to start off, what is your journey through life? How did you get here? Give us, give us an overview. Ah, uh, yes, the life story. Um, so my story is I grew up across India, the UK and the US. So I've kind of had a, a global upbringing and the computer graphics bug bit me early. I got really into visual effects at the age of 11. Uh, a pivotal moment in my life was seeing the behind the scenes for Independence Day and Terminator 2. I never was attracted to sort of like the Pixar style stylized cartoon 3D animation. This is right after Toy Story, et cetera, had come out. And uh, what enamored me was what Hollywood was pulling off specifically in visual effects, this ability to seamlessly blend reality and imagination. And that theme, reality and imagination, or the more utilitarian version of that, blending the physical and digital worlds has sort of stayed with me through my career. Uh, so moved to the U.S. Uh, for boarding school in 2006 and uh, attended the University of Southern California. Despite getting into my dream film school, I decided to study computer science and business. Started off as a creator and eventually somehow ended up a product manager. I've spent a decade in tech, uh, predominantly at Google, uh, working on everything from augmented and virtual reality platforms, consumer experiences, and a similar story on the 3D mapping side, platform capabilities, and then end user consumer facing applications of that too, both on enterprise and consumer itself. And uh, that's been a blast. Along the way, uh, I got into content creation early. I let it go for a while, and then I got back into it seriously in 2016. First with YouTube, right around VR video when it was taking off. I, you know, like was so deep in this stuff. I wanted to build my own camera rig, start creating content with it. Had my first breakthrough hit there on YouTube with a video that got like 50 something million views. And then I got into TikTok circa 2019, 2020, right? as like the world was shutting down and uh, suddenly everyone had a lot more time on their hands. And I found myself in this position where I lived in San Francisco at the time and commuted to Mountain View. I didn't have to sit in a godforsaken G bus anymore. And so that gave me, <laughs> A lot more time to make content. So I focused on TikTok and now I'm at almost at about a million. And I would say my current like uh, um, goal in life is to, you know, just be a creator and help the next generation of creatives like the 11 year olds of today make sense of this landscape of creation tools, as well as established creators that perhaps feel a sense of fear about what's just around the corner and how they can integrate like AI into their workflows rather than being in quotes replaced by it. So uh, I'm so glad uh, uh, we're here talking and uh, yeah, look forward to digging into other stuff too. Yeah, the first thing that comes to mind is like, how in the world did you manage both a full-time PM job and uh, how did you keep <laughs> stay motivated to keep putting stuff out? Uh, the creator journey is, it's a tough one. Um, it's, it, there's a lot of ups and downs. Do you have any tips? Uh, I mean, I, I think the key is the most cliche answer you probably hear, which is like, just do something you're passionate about, right? Creation is extremely broad. And I think what worked for me is because I had some false starts with creation myself, right? I'm kind of giving you the highlight reel. 
And, uh, and it's like in circa 2011, when YouTube was really taking off, you know, my friends corridor digital, who I knew from like, even when I was a kid in India on the same online forums, all of us like sort of ended up in the pre YouTube era on this like one community, which is wild. But when I, you know, 2011 came around, like I suddenly had a little bit more time. I graduated college in 2013 around 2011. I had like more space to start creating videos. And I was like, oh, should I be a, you know, tech product YouTuber like Marquez Brownlee? Like, should I do more Corridor Digital or like Freddie Wong was super hot back then, like VFX shorts? What should I do? And I kind of like that analysis paralysis resulted in me making very little content. Mm -hmm. And so like the, the biggest piece of advice I'd share compared to that to 2016 and then 2018, uh, 2020 when I really got into YouTube and TikTok respectively is just have as many at-bats as possible and sort of reframe the task of creation into something that is effortless and easy for you. So what works for me, especially on TikTok, so YouTube is hard to grow. It's mm -hmm, mm -hmm. now shorts makes it easier. TikTok far easier to make short form content. It's going to be one 15 second short, and I'm going to time box it to whatever I can do in three to four hours on Saturday morning and Sunday morning. And my goal is by Sunday, I have this video queued up to post or posted. Mm -hmm. And so that gives me maybe like eight hours in a week mm -hmm. to create some content. Mm -hmm. And then during the week, it's like, as I'm consuming, I'm always on an outlook for, Hey, this trend is popping. This audio is doing well. Hey, this is kind of cool. This like event is in the zeitgeist. How do I make a video around that? But again, really limiting to like, I'm not trying to make like 10 minute long, super well-produced pieces of content. It's like a short that I can get done in, in, you know, a handful of hours over the weekend. So that helped a lot. I would say during the early pandemic days where I experienced a lot of growth, I was doing two or three videos a week just because I had the time. But then as like post pandemic happened, 2022 came around, work also got more demanding. I had to like kind of move this to be, hey, I can maybe write about things that I find interesting during the week or just tweet them, but I will focus on like a test or something, but the actual content itself will come out or I would develop it during the weekends. So that worked for me. And I don't think I would have been able to do it if I wasn't passionate about a learning VFX, AR, VR, and AI tools. And B, if I just didn't like have this child, like childhood passion for making this reality bending content. And so like, you have to find that intersection of your icky guy to like, as a content creator, even like uh, of the stuff that'll make it sustainable for you. Because the thing I'll end on is saying like, always the videos that was extremely like cringing on like, ah, oh, I don't know if the quality is good enough or maybe I shouldn't put this out. Those are the videos that always do disproportionately well. I don't know why that is, but like also being okay with putting yourself out there, I think as an artist and a creator is very important because I think it's easy to be super perfectionist and then you're just not going, you know, into the arena. You're not throwing your nets out there. And so you're not obviously going to catch any interesting opportunities or fishes if you don't put yourself out there. And so I think showing up when you don't feel like it is super important. And that was very hard. I would say like, that's how my caffeine addiction sort of started <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Likewise <laughs> have a, a hard, hard caffeine uh, addiction. So as I'm listening to you talk, it sounds like it was really more of the discipline that you built around this. Um, what about, did you have, and it sounds like as you kind of experimented into a niche that works for you, 
But did you think, you know, like at any point, what is your strategy around this stuff? Um, you know, in the early days, I kind of positioned it. It's, it's funny. I always do a 50-50 split in like how I think about things. So when I was still working, it was interesting. My day job, um, you know, circa 2020 onwards or late 2019 onwards was 3D mapping. And so there was this like overlap but difference between my hobby of 3D and VFX mm -hmm. and then sort of this very utilitarian like how do we like model the world in immaculate detail and do very useful things with it. So I found this like outlet of like, there was some like overlapping technology. So photogrammetry and neural radiance fields being a great example where you can use them for virtual sets and you can use them to give users a feel for what a place looks like if it's worth going to. And so like what I found is that on the like absorption of like, what are the new primitives at my disposal? That sort of like, keeping a pulse on the latest and greatest, both on the research side and on the com commercial, like com commercially available tool side, helped me both in my day job and my weekend hobby. Yeah. And I think that was super helpful where I was like, hey, I'm gonna go deep into these photogrammetry tools and you know, I'll pay for the licenses and I'll do cool stuff with them. And I can use them in my like TikTok creations, but hey, all the insights I'm, I'm building, I can distill that down into a product analysis at work you know, that was all, all always very so deeply appreciated by the research and engineering teams because you know this, like at, at like large tech companies, there's like sort of the tech island in effect and yeah. people very rarely want to look at, hey, what are other people doing? And that's kind of a, PM, or, or, a, a part that's of right. a PM's job. Yeah. So I think that helped a bunch in terms of being able to have like sort of some overlap in at least the domain even the way that the technology manifest itself was like freaking monster and UFO videos on the weekend and like helping people find their latte as the day job, you know? So it's like very, very yeah, different, yeah. but I think that helped make it sustainable for me. And mm -hmm. I've always tried to do that where there's like a, you know, like, a, I don't know, like a more utilitarian side of something I'm looking into and then the delightful whimsical side. Yeah, yeah. No, I I think the the thing that you mentioned that really resonated is uh any successful PM in a large company is um an expert in one per in some particular thing and it's the go-to yeah. person and when you get when you reach that like you know you're good. <laughs> you have right. a good reputation and people will come to you. So, uh hearing you talk about finding you know that magic intersection of your hobbies and outside work and um the professional day-to-day -day is just um makes you the envy of a lot of people in silicon valley this is something <laughs> I, I was i was telling you earlier on because um of course with the recent upheavals in the industry and the layoffs and just in general a lot of people are thinking hey, if I was to quit my day job, what would I do? And unfortunately, a lot of people don't have that plan. And a lot of people don't know how to cope once they're in that situation, either by choice or <laughs> by necessity. Um, and uh, yeah, I, you know, much like what you said earlier, my advice to them is just do something, have yeah. build some discipline, put something out there and see what works, um, what's the worst that can happen? And just like you're saying, people are so scared because now you put yourself out there and that might potentially mean criticism as well, right? Totally. Yeah. 
So what I mean, is a couple? Yeah, go go for it. I say a couple of reactions to that. It's like I mean, it's like it's 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 maybe one mistake I made that I wish I hadn't made is like I kept my creator persona and my like professional persona separate for a while, mm-hmm. and then over the last year I've been trying to converge them. And really you see the convergence on Twitter where like I'm talking about all the tech stuff and the product stuff, but I'm also sharing my creations. Whereas I kept all my TikTok and YouTube accounts for the longest time faceless. The camera's not pointed at me, it's cameras away. Because of all these tropes people have, and what I realized even in the last year and a half or two years of vocally sharing on uh, LinkedIn and Twitter, it opened up opportunities within the company too. Like, you know, I'd already been writing and sharing my stuff widely internally, but there's a lot of people that like found my stuff through LinkedIn or through Twitter and like, yo, like we didn't even know you existed. And like, can you come like, then like you said, if you establish yourself as that domain expert and you're passionate about it, I think like you're, you're definitely good. So on the other hand, I would also say like, like I consider myself privileged to be able to make this kind of transition because I had been building it for a while. Yeah, I think it's very hard I've advised like some my mentees against taking this leap until they yep. reach a certain threshold of following or just like see some sort of traction. Because what the hardest thing is, like, gosh, and I feel for all the people who got laid off. I think it's like it's what a tough position to be in. Because I've noticed even for like a lot of veteran Googlers, it sort of popped this bubble they had in their head. Like even if they weren't laid off, and they're like, oh my god, like I thought this was like this. I don't know, fairy tale world where I would be impervious to all the things. And now they're like, wait, maybe I should build something of my own. And you know, it's never too late to get started, like I said. But I think also their tropes of like hustle on the side, as much as I hate the hustle world, is like a freaking thing. It's like, so like what whatever that is for you, whether that's you as like a blog writer or, you know, like a Twitter aficionado or a short form video creator or long form video creator or a podcast or whatever that top of funnel content thing is for you. I think you should build that in parallel, right? Like, and then the transition so much easier because imagine trying to build that from a daunting zero subscribers or even a thousand, 2000 subscribers. Like it's tough to do that. Like, and there's a group of people who are like, Hey, that's the only thing I'm doing. And I'm going to grow. Like that's Mr. Beast's story, right? Like basically didn't get a job and hustled year after year until experiencing that breakthrough moment. But I think it's just far easier if you, you know, have a day job that's covering your, like, you know, it's keeping you mentally occupied. It's like paying the bills and then you're building and nurturing this thing on the side without that pressure. Cause then you can experiment more too, right? Like you're not going to end up on this, like, most of the creators I talk to now are like, feel like they're on this treadmill of brand gig to brand gig. And it's just like another form of a nine to five, right? Like, and so it is, it's a grind. And that's what people don't realize. Like people who don't try it, who, who look at it from the outside, don't appreciate what it means to do this. And I'm by no means a professional, but I've just been dabbling just to see what is this world. Um, And to be honest, I wasn't really aware very much of it. Um, Like my story. It's work, right? It is. It is work. And um, like in my case, I tend to get very, uh, I just tend to go all in on on the corporate job and I just get so passionate about it. I'm thinking about it 24 seven and it just sort of overwhelms. Uh, my life. But on the other hand, the one thing I, I, you know, I have that maybe a lot of people haven't had this experience is I've done startups before. 
And there's just so much inherent uncertainty built into that experience. Um, and I've done this, you know, this kind of thing a few times now to where I just like, I know how to find other people to work with. I know how to set a schedule. I know how to like put goals, how to get the whole thing going. So it's, um, yeah, but, but I talk to so many people who don't, understand the creator journey and just think it's putting out like how hard could it be yeah it's like oh i'm just like getting paid to travel places you know and yeah that does happen you, know, you do but... get to go to cool places but yeah it's like to i don't like you know like it's like you're kind of like the product manager but the product is you right and like your deliverables you. are the content yeah. content right like so it's like it's it it's it's more work than people think and i think like it's going to become more work as like more people realize the value of like the sort of top of funnel organic reach, especially in this sort of post iOS landscape mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. the best ways brands and you know product companies can reach users is through these islands of users that these like uh, islands of viewers that these creators are cultivating, right? They're all sort of building their own islands in this like interwebs and like around a certain niche or a set of niches or their own personality. And so, Again, never too late to get started. And anyone who feels even mildly envious of what I'm doing is like has no excuse but to dive right in and make stuff happen. Yeah. Like I, I talked to creator Riley two weeks ago who like was a marketing manager and quit a job, started doing TikTok videos and grew from zero to 100K in like a month and a half. So wow. like it's, it's like doable. But then again, like Riley's cranking up three videos a day. Like you got to be willing to then do three TikToks a day. Like that's three 30, 60 seconds TikToks that are like market researched and scripted and are sharpened to the point. If anyone did that in whatever niche, I would be so surprised if they didn't grow on TikTok. Like it's just like, I don't think it's even an option. Yeah. And as you talk about it, people might hear 30 seconds. How hard could that be? But how Oof. long does it actually take to make a 30 yeah. second TikTok that's that, you know, good, good. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Your competition is all the other scroll stopping content, right? I think it's like, mm -hmm. imagine you have to convince a person in three seconds of watching that they should stick around and watch this 30 to 60 second thing and not just scroll off to the next thing. And so that's where I think a little bit of the bad rap creators get with the whole clickbait thing. But like. You know, I think Nathan Lands, who's getting into the whole like Twitter creation thing, had a great tweet about this. It's like, you got to lean into that. You got to hook the viewer, right? Like, yeah. and so like, I think these are all skills that we all learn in tech. And I'm surprised that they're not more tech creators, to be honest. Like there's the Juma techs of the world that do more like skits around. He was a SWE, by the way, at Google working in like YouTube ads and is like, mm -hmm. like has a million, I think, followers on YouTube now and is he's doing more like kind of parody content around the tech tropes that exist, you know, what does it mean yeah. to do a stand up, you know, as an engineer in a tech company mm -hmm. today, stuff mm -hmm. like that. But people can come at it from different niches. I think like the most obvious one is obviously like the one that I don't like too much is like the myriad of I'll help you get a product job creators. Like everyone's got their like how to get a job in, in tech spiel. Yeah. Maybe that's cool. Some people like teaching and educating and that could be a vehicle for that type of content, right? So instead of mentoring five people one-on-one, -on -one, you can now reach a bunch of people, right? With your advice and then cherry pick the four or five people you wanna go hands-on with, right? 
Yeah, no, this, that, what you just said is going off into a little bit of like a tangent, which is there's a whole new way for people to learn things. And yeah, I have friends who are doing Maven and they're taking off. Like, I'm a huge fan of Gaga, <laughs> by the way. Uh, he's cool. just like followed his entrepreneurial journey. Um, but let's get back to the, you know, the tools and, Specifically, you, you know, you've been doing the creator thing a while, so you're seeing the evolution of all these tools and platforms as they've come out. But now AI is the big thing, right? And it's just Damn right. the repercussions of this technology and the new tools that are coming on the market are just going to upend everything for creators and for content. Um, what are your thoughts around, you know, just... The evolution, I'd love to hear about the, some of the tools that are your favorite tools. Um, we have so much to talk about here. Yeah, that's a, that's a broad one. Let's see, like, I think you're totally right. Like a disruption is brewing. You know, I like to joke that I never thought in my wildest imagination there would be a technological wave that could question the hegemony that is Autodesk and Adobe. Because they just like kind of have a stranglehold on the creation tool chains. Adobe with the Creative Suite, obviously, and Autodesk, and, and both have done some phenomenal set of acquisitions. There was a time in the 3D world where it'd be like, oh, yeah, you know, you're like Softimage, Lightwave, you know, freaking Maya and 3DS Max. And they were sort of all separate worlds. And then, like, obviously, a bunch of those are now aggregate. Softimage, uh, uh, Maya, and, and 3DS Max all became owned by Autodesk. And then, you know, we had some, like, semblance of competition emerging with cinema 4d on very niche motion graphics and like if you've seen any advertisement over the past 10 years that has like those flashy colorful 3d motion graphics cinema 4d was probably in the loop and then blender this open source wave that was sort of happening and just for people that don't know yeah. uh, let me let me jump in here for really quickly sure. what are all what are the applications of all these tools so like autodesk what yeah. industries what do people do with that stuff Obviously, Hollywood is 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 another yeah. one. Um, but like, what is the stuff for Maya? Some of these tools that you're talking about, like, for sure. What are these yeah, cases? So, Autodesk's is interesting as a company. It's like a majority of their revenue comes from architecture, engineering, and construction. And so, like AutoCAD, Revit. If you made a house or you know done floor plans, that's sort of like the de facto tool of choice. And so that's their like sort of cash cow, if you will. And then they have an amazing set of media and entertainment tools for Hollywood game developers and so forth. And Maya is sort of the industry standard 3D tool. Um, you know, if you're doing anything around sophisticated 3D animation, simulation, rendering, what have you, like any kind of really complex 3D task that's not in architecture, engineering and construction, and even sometimes is, ends up being in Maya. And so what's happened is like Maya has become this sort of like, it's like the de facto tool that Hollywood visual effects houses and agencies have built proprietary pipelines around. It has a programming language associated with it, basically Python mail scripting. And so you can create custom tools and plugins around Maya. And so that's been like the, basically every movie you see, every ad you see probably has like Maya involved in some shape or fashion. And so, like, that's the tool I ended up growing up with. I started out with 3DS Max, but it's like, oh, you want to learn 3D? Oh, you do, I have to learn Maya. Like, go learn Maya. And it's like, and oh, my God. It's like this bloated, so, massive tool with, like, 
you know, decades old code base, you know, like as you can imagine. And sort of similar story on the Adobe side too. Like a same exact thing. And there it's like broken up into graphic design, motion graphics and video editing and maybe some 3D stuff now. But typically a creator's workflow will end up touching a bunch of these tools, maybe 3D for creating the assets and doing the renders. And then you're doing the compositing and After Effects. And then you're doing the editorial and the sound in something like Premiere. So that's sort of the status quo landscape at a very high level. There's a bunch of other really key tools and players, but those are like sort of the big money makers. Yeah. And the industries sounds like are architecture, construction, building design, gaming, marketing, any sort of Hollywood uh, movie entertainment. So a lot of the creative stuff, some, some I guess, are, uh, construction, engineering type stuff as well. That's a very, yeah, workflow it's so wide-ranging and broad. Oh, yeah. I mean, you throw AR and game development in there. That's been another thing that popped off, right? It's like, because fundamentally, what, what the three, I break it into like sort of tools that operate in 3D space and sort of pixel space and pixel operations. Yeah. And that's a very rough categorization. There's, you know, tr tools that do both in interesting ways too, but... It's so funny how 3D has become central to so many industries, right? Like whether that's from like, you're trying to raise money to like build this property out to, you know, you're trying to give somebody a tour of the place when they want to buy it to, you know, more and more of even the advertising you see on screen ends up being more synthetic versus physically shot. And so then you've got all these real time, you know, kind of obviously like game experiences first and foremost, but then also this whole wave of augmented reality filters and stuff like that in virtual reality games, I'll put that in the game bucket, but you know, like there's so many places where 3d is a crucial part of the workflow. And so I think like what makes AI interesting to go to your, like where is perhaps going is like these tools kind of came up in this world where it's like this sort of ill tailored tapestry of very like niche specific skills you know, like the, 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 the trope in Hollywood to date continues to be, it's sort of the waterfall approach. And you as a creator, you specialize, oh, I'm a 3D modeler. And so then you'll learn Maya and then all the other like 3D sculpting and painting tools associated with that. Or I'm an animator or I'm a texturing artist or I'm, I'm a lighter and a rigger, like whatever the, the, the specialization is. And then you chain all these tools together, some owned by the same companies, Autodesk and Adobe and some owned by other proprietary like commercial tools. But then it was very specialized. I think what AI is doing is like, it's sort of making the generalist like more powerful now because you know the whole trope that even exists in, in, in sort of the tech world of like the T-shape, right? Like you gotta be broad in certain areas and deep mm -hmm. in certain areas. I think what generative AI is doing, certainly for me, I've always wanted to be a generalist. I never wanted to specialize but I invertedly ended up inadvertently ended up specializing in things that I liked. So for me, that was visual effects compositing. I loved the stage where everything comes together and I can take the output of the 3d tools and the Photoshop tools and the generative tools and create the final piece orchestrate it all together. I think that can now be done by any one of these specialists. Like essentially AI makes you a tripod or a table. It gives you all the other legs, like the deep X wells of expertise that you didn't build yourself, you can lean on machines to do that for you. So I think that makes it very interesting to think about how content goes from this like waterfall, you know, 
the movie gets funded, you know, you do script writing, then you start doing storyboarding and then like creating all the assets and animating, rendering, editorial sound effects. How do you make creation less waterfall and more agile? And then what does that mean for like the existing like platforms for like what kind of content will emerge on there? But then also how content consumption will change altogether as these tools sort of, you know, when it becomes as easy as being able to articulate something for a movie, being able to see that movie come to life. I think we're still far away from that, but it's heading in that direction where like content creation is becoming more iterative, faster paced, agile, and you can do more with less. And that means indies will be able to rival the output of a studio, but then studios will be able to set new standards or maybe invent new canvases altogether. So that's kind of like how I'm thinking about the space and yeah, the current tools and sort of where stuff is going. And there are two sides of it. There's definitely the creator aspect and then there's the consumption aspect. Um, 100%, yeah. And uh, yeah, I think the cre- on the creator side, the way I think about it, it is just basically uh, it's democratizing creation for people. Though I do have to admit, like, you know, having played with Midjourney a bunch, I, you know, you still have to learn how to use it. <laughs> You're oh still, yeah, totally. You still have these are new skills, and let's touch on this one. I think this one's interesting. Sure. It's really the birth of all these AI tools is also producing a new type of creator, who's like an AI creator that now has specializes in AI tools, um, and these are people who you know may not have that kind of background to begin with, but <laughs> jumping in headfirst yeah. and are doing an amazing job. Um, yeah, what are your thoughts on AI creators? And because uh, I've noticed that it's like suddenly in the last five months, there's just people <laughs> who have previously were doing content and marketing, but have jumped into the AI creation space um, anew. Yeah, yeah, I think I mean that's an astute observation. It's absolutely a trend that's happening, and it's funny how it's like almost, you know, I always like to joke about how there's like very little pushback on text models. But you've noticed even from the art, art, art visual art create, creation community, it's that's the community that's been the most vocal or a subset of that community has been the most vocal about the pushing back against these AI tools, which, you know, we can get into what my thoughts are there. But to answer your question, I think like it's this fascinating thing where it is democratizing aspects of creation, right? Like that is to say, if you were, let's say, on the marketing side and you were better at like defining the strategy for the content and packaging content, you can now do a little bit of the creation, but you relied on teams of artists to do that type of creation. Now you're empowered to go do that. I like to say, like, I've been talking to a lot of directors lately and like, like content, like film directors lately. And it's like the, the thing that I keep telling them is like, Hey, now you can like create a proof of concept for your idea by orchestrating these various AI models before you take things to the creatives that you like to work with. Right? Like, and I think there's like, there's this like opportunity for people to roll up their sleeves and actually get hands-on with creation. I don't think it's one click or one prompt magical answer, right? Like even if you talk to any of the folks using Midjourney, as you've alluded to using it, the tools yourself, it's like there is a art and science of like learning how to talk to these models, right? Like, and I'm sure like, you know, prompt pre-processing and just the way we prompt these models will change. And it already is, if you think about the shift from, I don't like text to image that much, to be honest. I like mm-hmm. it for ideation. Mm-hmm. I love control net because I want to provide visual guidance to a model. Hey, 
This is visually what I'm thinking. I would like you to use this as a strong guideline for whatever you create. And I give you freedom to like, you know, keep this geometric structure, but then feel free to like texture it how you like. But I would like this layout, this camera angle, you know, this framing, these lighting conditions. I want to have specificity in some regards and not in others. And now you're seeing tools support that. So it's exciting to me that there's a new class of creators who can express themselves that haven't had to, for example, spend years learning all the crap I learned, right? Like that to me is exciting. Cause it's like these licenses, most of these licenses are expensive. And then you have to build this like deep esoteric knowledge. It's like learning how to play guitar, right? Like you gotta go through like eight to 12 months of just like sounding like fricking crap. Your fingers hurt. You're like, what am I doing? And then you hit this like baseline level of skill where you can start like, okay, cool. Now I can read tabs. Oh, finally I can play this Metallica song or whatever. I think what, what generative AI has done is it's like given everyone that sort of starting point and mm -hmm. it's become more like electronic music in a way where you can go into these like digital audio workstations and you can start like composing music with a bunch of instruments and you haven't had to learn stuff. Maybe you'll learn basic keyboard, like, you know, some scales and you can, you're off to the races. So I think the same thing's happening with generative AI where like you still have to build skill sets within design, within filmmaking, within like just building a creative eye, if you will, and knowing how to talk to the models or you yourself knowing how to manipulate the outputs of the models to get to that final creative vision. But I think it's certainly like brought everyone to this like closer step to like not have to go through that six to eight months of the most obvious example being there a lot of pushback was from like digital artists, like digital artists that learned how to use a Wacom tablet or an iPad pencil and learned procreate and learned Photoshop and spent hours upon hours learning how to do line work and shading and all of that. And now along come all these like people who can just type in a freaking text prompt and create something that looks better. Like that the immediate human reaction is to like, you know, entrench yourself and retreat and say, this is bad. This is soulless. But now enter things like control net where like, yes, you know, somebody who didn't have artistic experience can now make output. But now somebody who does know how to do line work can use control net mm -hmm. and like mm -hmm. provide far more detailed guidance to like, not just like, you know, 10 X, maybe hundred X their output because they know the voc visual vocabulary and they can prompt these models in a far more like specific way than perhaps a text to image your creator who's going through hundreds and hundreds of iterations to figure something out. It's like, yo, you, I sketched this thing out. This is what I want my four, you know, tiles of the comic book to be. Boom. You can do that way faster than that person who doesn't have your artistic knowledge. So I'm excited for both people who can now tell stories that couldn't have expressed themselves because it required this prerequisite sort of like wrote you know, some aspects of memorization, some aspect of just practice, but I'm also excited about how existing creators get this like crazy force multiplier to like express their vision in a fashion that like they just couldn't have without raising money or hiring massive teams. Yeah. And, you know, as a somebody who's done AI product management forever, the thing that strikes me is like generative AI is the perfect fit for creative tools. Yeah. Uh, because I'm not so sure 
you know, people talk about hallucination. Hallucination is a feature when it comes to 100%. creativity. Yeah, not a bug. Agreed. Uh, and so that's that's where it really the technology shines and is it's very exciting what it's it's doing. And it's I've caught the creative bug. I'm not <laughs> I, not a creative person necessarily. You know, I don't think of myself as a, like a, a visual artist. But I do. I've always liked to write, and now I mess around with all the visual stuff too. Um, That's cool. On the on the other side, we talked about creations one side, but consumption, just yeah. the implications of what this technology is going to do. You know, like with the iPhone, uh, with all the mobile phones, we had explosion of photos and and, and videos, and now we're going to have an explosion of synthetic content. And this is just <laughs> going to be insane. Where you know, I mean, we can't even tell if it's real or not. Totally. Um, I just, this is, I think it's just an exciting and interesting time. And I, I wonder what, uh, I, I don't know. I wonder what, you know, what are some of the implications that maybe we can't see today? Obviously, like all the stuff around fake images yeah, yeah. and, and uh, videos. But uh, I don't know what else it's going to mean for how we see the world uh it's it's gonna be a whole new era that's <laughs> we're on the cusp of i think you're right and yeah like no one can really know how you know there's almost this like haze like this fog beyond a certain point where you can't really predict what's going to happen because we also don't know how these technologies sort of stack on each other which is also why there's a lot of anxiety it's like you know, like, I think if we didn't have the internet and web 2.0, where we like inundated the public web with content, we certainly wouldn't have had this generative AI era, right? Like the big data era made this era possible, both on like the perception model side, sort of your old world and sort of this new world of like generative stuff, right? Like wouldn't have been possible in terms of what this means for consumption. I like to think of everything in extremes <laughs> and like, the two extremes that I kind of see happening is like, one is we're on this trend, sort of you alluded to this with a smartphone, right? Like the democratization of sensors, the democratization of distribution platforms. We're seeing like already there's a shift from like the small patch of land called Hollywood and like talent and technology sort of, you know, coalescing around that area to produce one size fits all massive productions that are intended for mass distribution to sort of the YouTube era, which was like, all right, like maybe 1% of actual users create content less than 1%. And, you know, but we're suddenly seeing an explosion of longer form content that's video that perhaps has like, would never have been funded by or greenlit by the traditional studio model. Fast forward to TikTok, where 30, 40, 50% of creators are able to actually create because there's no blank canvas problem. There's this interesting flywheel that they've created, trends that took months, you know, now, you know, disappear into obscurity within a week, right? And so, like, more people are creating content. So you're seeing this, like, trend towards personalization that's happening. I think generative AI is going to supercharge that, both in terms of, like, long-form content that, like, would, like, movies will get made that would have never been funded otherwise. And they will be movies made for niche audience with a production quality that rivals stuff that's made with like, you know, $100 million budget, you know, plus for a very mass market launch. So I'm excited about that. There's a dystopian bent to this too, <laughs> which is sort of like the, you know, like there is a world in which we eliminate creators altogether. 
And I think like that's a decision we all have to make, which is that like, I can imagine a future where you've got, you know, your TikTok style or Instagram reel style, you know, interest based graph that knows you well better than you know yourself. And you're just generating synthetic content for you to keep you engaged. Like screw retention editing that YouTubers employ. Like you could be using biometric feedback loops to like do retention editing in real time to keep you engaged. Right. And that's a worrisome future to me. Then again, I think practically you'll see both of these things happen where you'll have like human centric, human created tentpole quality content or whatever, you know, all, all, all tiers of quality that humans are curating for a specific audience in a niche. And then you'll have this sort of like long tail of low value content, perhaps your news consumption, for example, or your newsletters, all that stuff will get automated and be synthetic, right? And like, maybe you want to like want a 60 second summary of all your news for the day. Well, you can get that. You prefer to read it in sort of the Ben bites, like bullet point fashion. You can read that. But I think that's sort of like level one content of like synthesis and aggregation. I don't see any future where humans are doing that stuff anymore. Humans will have to jump to higher levels of abstraction to do opinion pieces, to you continue this sort of like analogy there to be relevant. And so that's kind of how I see consumption changing content that's hyper-personalized either algorithmically or make creator led just because you can make that content now and make it monetarily viable that you just couldn't have thought about previously. And, and so like, I think that's going to be super exciting to see. Will we have a future where you sit down with your partner at the end of the day and you're like, Oh, like, Let's just like type in a prompt for our freaking Netflix movie and your Apple watches are like, you know, refining the movie in real time. Maybe, I don't know. I, I still think there's a space for like, we as humans tell ourselves the same stories time and time again, since time memorial, you know, the hero's journey being a good example of that. So I think there'll always be a space for both. And the way I rationalize it, ready to be proven drastically wrong by market forces, but Hey, like low value, like layer level one content gets automated away and it's fully synthetic consumed in the modality of your choice. Mm -hmm. But then we'll still want these sort of pieces of content, which we as a small or large community, Hey, did you see episode X of that new game of Thrones show? We want to react and comment on things as a community. So I think both will perhaps coexist. What exactly that split looks like? I don't know. I certainly hope the future isn't like freaking Mountain Dew straight to my vein and just me consuming content like Cartman all the time. Yeah, no, the the imagery I see in my head is that from that movie WALL-E where the humans are all floating <laughs> around. Yeah, in our like little chairs. Fat, little chairs. <laughs> Don't do anything, really. Everything is yeah. fully, fully automated. Yeah, I, you know, there's a whole another maybe podcast on philosophical implications <laughs> of like what this is going to do for us because I don't even know that we're ready for the technology we have now like totally, with the yeah. internet what is this going to do to our brains um, I, um, one thing I also wanted to touch on like we've both been at big companies that are that have shipped major AI advancements you've spent six years at Google <laughs> and I spent over four years at Meta AI um yeah, let's maybe touch on building AI products at big companies. Um, it's, uh, it, it, you know, there's so many 
benefits of being in that per particular position. So maybe I'll start. Totally. And I, want, I want to hear your take. Yeah, um, let's do it. I, I loved, you know, the scale of uh, the problems. Yes. I loved the people were fantastic. Some of the best minds in the world. Um, I just loved solving all of these, you know, working on these very important problems and, and doing research to production, really having a front row seat to the latest advancements in the industry. And I think that's a very enviable place and a privilege. Uh, but on the other hand, there's also <laughs> a whole set of frustrations. So let's spill the tea. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you, uh, go, go pro and con. I'll do the same. I think that's yeah, funny. Yeah, I mean, yeah. con is, you know, it, it moves uh, obviously slower than it should. There totally. is multiple alignments to go through. So anytime, oh, anytime you work in a big company, you have to align with multiple people, multiple groups, multiple VPs. You get all have to get all sort of stakeholder alignment. Um, another one I will touch on is really, you know, let's. This is a big one: incentives for employees. Mm. Yeah. So the things that uh, get you a good performance reviews may not always be the best thing for the business. Totally. Um, I think that one is, yeah, that is a very challenging one because, you know, like if I was Zuck or something, it's also very difficult to set up a system that rewards people properly as well. And yeah. I don't know of anyone that's done it perfectly. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's an amazing journey. We'll see what happens. I think the big, my take is the big players are well positioned to, uh, you know, take advantage of the latest AI revolution. But I think there's also lots of opportunity for smaller companies and it's not clear yeah. what, what the opportunity for smaller companies is. Um, and obviously the bigger ones already have so many different levers they can pull totally. to make uh infusion of ai more um, make their products more successful with the infusion of ai i think the one that's yeah. very interesting on this particular topic and especially for ai product development is ai first products i don't think that big mm. players are well positioned to create those yeah the incentive isn't there also, the incentives right? yeah. are not there and i think nobody everyone th I, I think most people in, in the field like us have an inkling and, and know that this is coming, but nobody quite knows what those AI first products are going to look like. 110%. The example I like to give is it's like, we're figuring out like how to build like a maps SDK and location services, but nobody's figured out what Uber is, right? Like people are like, oh yeah, yeah. I can put my listings on a map and you can see the listings and stuff like it's, they, they haven't created the true like, you know, unicorn plus 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 opportunities but yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think your experience largely mirrors mine. I'd say like there are pros and cons. I think the answer is going to be very different that I'm giving today than what I would have given even like a year and a half or two years ago, which is to say like these big companies are tanker ships, right? Like the, the ship analogy is the one that works the best for me. It's like, it's a big ass ship and you know, us as PMs and TLMs and all, you know, design leads, we're like sort of like the tugboat that are trying to steer this like massive ship in a certain direction and it's tough you get a lot of gray hair i certainly have a lot more gray hair than i did <laughs> you know going into google and like it you know it's satisfying too when you get those things done and you actually launch it you do so at a scale 
that is uncomparable. And I think it's scale in terms of like the reach of deployment, like working on billion user products, which is the cliche thing. But I think also what's interesting is the novel data sets you get to work with. And like, maybe that answer is different for me since I worked on geospatial and 3D maps. Like, you know, people, there's this debate happening with the LLM world right now, right? It's like, how valuable are proprietary data sets? Like, if you just scrape the public internet, is that enough? And then if that is enough, like, where's the moats, right? And maybe you complement that with like some really good reinforcement learning from human feedback, or maybe some licensed data sets that you get here based on your domain. But I think in a place like mapping, right? Like there is no other company, then maybe there are a handful of companies in the private sector and maybe some public sector entities that could run a mapping operation that involves high resolution satellite imagery, like literally being able to go to an engineer and be like, yo, like, can we task a satellite? And an engineer's writing a CL to move satellites in orbit. Like that was mind blowing. Like 2019, I was having like nerd extravaganza to just think that's possible <laughs> to like, oh, we want to do this thing in London. Can we fly a fleet of planes with these insane camera sensors on them and go capture that city down to street view cars with 150 megapixel sensors and like freaking LIDAR to go do these like multi-lane collects and sidewalk collects to create this like next generation digital twin. So like the fact that I got to work on that, I think is like a privilege of a lifetime to your point, the people, oh my God, like even in the AR days, like, oh, this person did like basically wrote the thing on photogrammetry and like lighting estimation. You get to work with that person. Oh my God. Like this person wrote the book on computer vision that everyone reads. And like that person's hitting me up for advice. It's like, oh, holy crap, what's going on? Like that, I had a lot of these like sort of, sort of like fanboy-ish moments where I'd like these luminaries I'd looked up to and then I got to work with them and like ship stuff with them and become friends with many of them and mentors with others. That was like a wild experience. I don't think you can experience that anywhere else other than like these large companies that like attract the best talent and have the world's most challenging problems to tackle. So while some people may say, hey, like startups do all the innovative stuff. Well, like tell me a startup that's mapping the world in 3D and doing it at any semblance of scale, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. So tell me a startup that has 2.9 billion users and you sneeze, you hit millions of people. <laughs> yeah. Like, and, no, you know, good that, luck with that. That also has its downside, which goes oh, to your yeah. incentive oh, point, yeah. Yeah, yeah. which is like there is this culture. And I, I saw this more on the consumer side than the platform side. Because platform teams are far more incentivized to build novel capabilities and just drive adoption inside and outside. First party or third party, as it said, or second party, which is like a hilarious creation of tech companies, is the fact that there are billions of users also creates this incentive structure where people do very incremental consumer-facing launches, and they sort of like rotate their feature on a yep. high impression surface. Yep. And that's like, I don't know if that's the right thing for the company, you know? And so like it's kind of, you know, it's always hindsight's always like, you know, things look perfect in, in retrospect, but I mean, there's a lot of products like I pushed on and pitched that everyone told me I was stupid to do. Cause there were zero to one. Uh, everyone was like, no, no, no. Just like, don't change teams or keep doing your thing. And like, blah, blah, blah. And I don't know, again, like I, I just followed passion and I think that tended to work out. But I also think like there's so many people that miss out on being an entrepreneur at these large companies. They go in and they follow oh, yeah. the, the fricking cookbook is like, well, 
here's what the ladder says to get the staff or senior staff or director, whatever. Right. Like, and here's what I'm going to start doing to, to do that. And, and like, people forget that like their ultimate strength is whatever unique lens they have on the world kind of to go like, you know, some of, some of the things we were talking about earlier and leaning into that. Cause like the next step will be far more clear to you, you know, especially when, you know, things go wrong or, you know, stuff happens versus if you're following some playbook and you're like, well, oh crap, like, what, what do I do now? It's like, you're not going to have that internal conviction and compass that helps guide you to that. So to wrap up, I would say big companies are still going to be cool. I don't know if like, I think the world that we're currently in, to your point, it's going to largely, the world tends to fall into that configuration of a bit of an oligopoly. Maybe there's like a handful of really large foundational models. And then there's a bunch of personalized, smaller models, some really big ones, you know, models that work at the edge, models that are tailored specific to you, your data, your problem, your niche. And I think that'll kind of all coexist together. And finally, I also agree with you. All the wave of startups that are doing the Chrome extensions to like augment Google Docs or Notion or whatever, all of these teams are launching their own stuff, right? And so they will like that, that first second wave of companies is gone, right? Like the whole YC meme of like, all the GPT-3 startups got eaten up by GPT-4. That's just on the functionality layer, right? Like, I mean, on the in terms of distribution, you cannot understate the advantage people have. I was actually like shooting a retort back to, to Skullboy. He's like, well, people are adopting OpenAI now. That means like, you know, Google's done for. It's like maybe by the end of the year, if like other solid offerings aren't out there, maybe. But I think we still underestimate how much advantage Apple has controlling an OS or Google has controlling an OS and large, you know, billion plus user, you know, uh, in our distribution surfaces. Same thing with Microsoft, where's where, why the, maybe the strategic alliance could be, you know, sort of the, the bet to beat like this tanker that knew it's slow moving, didn't have its own deep mind, didn't have its own Google brain or nothing of that caliber and tightly aligned itself with maybe not a speedboat, maybe not a pirate ship. You could call it, I don't know, like some sort of some sort of like destroyer ship, you know, like faster moving destroyer. Forgive my Navy, random Navy analogies here, but that alliance could be something to beat. But yeah, like there'll be spaces for all of them and you can go have fun and make a ton of impact on a freaking massive ship. I will say the downside for me, since I didn't touch on too much of that is definitely all the stuff you mentioned, but gosh, you have to become best friends with your like product and commercial counsel. Like it was yeah. just like, oh God, so many simple things that a company is like launching and iterating, we had to like... Yeah, oh yeah, I had the same experience. Lord. And I loved my policy and legal and privacy counterparts, amazing, yeah. amazing people, top of their field, so well-versed in technology and Paul and all of these other things. Yeah. But yeah, um, the reality is if you work in a big company, you have to go jump through all those hoops and rightly so because the reputational risk to a big company totally. is so it's much massive. great. It's massive. Yeah. So you have to do that, but it slows down your innovation, um, your shipping cycles. Whereas, you know, you're a, a startup, you just put stuff out there. Out there. Yeah. You, your you, blast radius yeah, is limited, you, right? You, I mean, you, you just don't even have the resources to have um, a lot of these functions carefully think through the implications. Awesome. Thank you so much, Bilawal. It's been a pleasure. To conclude, what are <laughs> what are some of the? I, I I think I want to conclude with two things. What is 
what are the latest AI products or advancements that are your favorites that you're excited about? And second, what are the things that we should be looking out from you next? Cool. Yeah. Okay. This has been a fun conversation. I think uh, the things I'm excited about continue to be control net, basically ways to provide more guidance in this image generation process and how that manifests to all sorts of modalities, but specifically still image creation and video creation. I think there is going to be a open source equivalent for video to video and text to video coming out shortly. I think control net's going to be a key piece in that. Certainly if you have any kind of artistic, if you have a clearer creative concept in mind. So I'm deep diving into control net 1.1 right now. Super excited about all that stuff. People are training their own control nets. I've written extensively about this. So if you're like, what the hell is control net, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, go check out my Substack, creative tech digest. And the other thing that I'm very, very excited about, and you know, this is, this is, you had asked me earlier about like, uh, the, the Ted talk that I gave, it's about this intersection of reality capture and you know, these diffusion models is very interesting to me. Like reality capture has been this esoteric field limited to, you know, like, as we discussed a small number of really large players or people, you have to like capturing reality is tough. You can't capture everything. So then the question is, how do you capture enough of reality and fill the holes in? And I think there's going to be this beautiful marriage of diffusion models and neural radiance fields that starts hinting at this, whether you want to take a single photo, a small set of photos, or a vast number of photos, being able to have like this sort of 3D autocomplete for reality capture is very exciting to me. And then finally, the third tier, which is what I'm going to be focusing on is educationally entertaining content. I'm going to continue making the stuff that I'm making. How do you use, hey, how do you blend reality and imagination with reality capture and all this stuff? But you alluded to Maven. I have a generative AI masterclass coming out next month with Maven. Um, super excited about that. Um, anyone who's interested in both the strategic implications of like, hey, like what are just the various models specifically in this like text to content space? Mm -hmm. And how do you compose those together to like actually create content. So the strategic, but then let's also go hands-on and make stuff with these tools. That's what you can expect from that course. It'll be on the weekends. It'll be basically two hours, Saturday, Sunday for three weekends in a row. And we'll go strategic. So you can know if you're like a product thinker, or like an executive thinking about how do I deploy generative AI into your business context? You'll get an understanding of that, but that's not it. We gotta go hands-on and start playing with these tools and make some stuff. And what's cool is, I started talking to Maven in October of last year and went through one of their accelerators. And back then the tools were so sparse. Now they're in such a good place that we can actually just duct tape together a couple of these far more robust tools to end up creating content, even if you never made it in the past. And if you've had, like you will find this, like how you will learn how to go from not just a 10 X multiplier, but to the very cliche hundred X multiplier. So. That's what I'm excited about. Some other brand gigs on the horizon too, but you know, like uh, that's the real one that I would love to blast out to your audience is a uh, course coming on Maven. And if you're excited about it, you know, hit me up. And if you want to see what it's like, what that content's like, check out my Twitter and then check out my Substack. Amazing. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. <laughs> pleasure as well. Thank you for having me. And I, I look forward to many more conversations off the record as well. Cheers. Cheers.